This is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me for the next hour is Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. And uh, I always like to have Jason on following a debate uh, but also in light of these public hearings and uh, the congressional hearings uh, on the uh, House Democratic-led uh, impeachment inquiry. And before we begin our discussion here, I wanted to play a couple of cuts from those hearings. Uh, we had the, I guess, the featured testimony was the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, Sondland a Hotelier, who paid $1 million to go to Trump's administration, Trump's inauguration, ended up getting an ambassadorship. Uh, but Sondland said Trump was seeking a quid pro quo between Ukraine announcing investigations and a White House meeting with the president. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Mr. Giuliani conveyed to Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volcker, and others that President Trump wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing to investigations of Burisma and the 2016 election. Mr. Giuliani expressed those requests directly to the Ukrainians, and Mr. Giuliani also expressed those requests directly to us. We all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and the right White House meeting reflected President Trump's desires and requirements. So Sondland says he put two and two together to add up that the quid pro quo existed, but Republicans asked Sondland if Trump ever told him directly about any preconditions. Did the president ever tell you personally about any preconditions for anything? No. Okay, so the president never told you about any preconditions for the aid to be released? No. Uh, The president never told you about any preconditions for a White House meeting? Personally, no. So, of course, Republicans tried to make a a big point out of that. But Sondland was questioned by Democratic Congressman Sean Maloney of New York about who would benefit from an investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden and his family. And Sondland didn't really want to answer. Who would benefit from an investigation of the president's political opponent? Well, presumably that the person who asked for the investigation. Who's that? If the president asked for the investigation, it would be he. Well, it's not a hypothetical, is it, sir? We just went around this track, didn't we? The president asked you about investigations. He was talking about the Bidens. When he, when he asked you about the Biden investigation, who was he seeking to benefit? He did not ask me about the Biden investigation. When he I've asked you about, about investigations... About times, Mr. Sir, Bond. sir, we just went through this. When he asked you about investigations, which we all agree now means the Bidens, we just did this about 30 seconds ago. We, right? It, it's a pretty simple question, isn't it? I, I, guess, I guess I'm having trouble why you can't just say... When he asked about investigations, I assumed he meant... I know what you assume. Company. But who would benefit from an investigation of the Bidens? They're two different questions. I, I, I'm just asking you one. Who would benefit 
from an investigation of the Bidens. I assume President Trump would benefit. There we have it. See? An interesting moment in uh, a long, long series of hearings. Well, because there's such a long set of hearings, Rick, I mean, Maloney doesn't really need that answer. They can make that argument, and the inference is pretty clear, but sometimes it's important in a long hearing to kind of cut through things and get right to the point. Who would have benefited by this? The president would have benefited by it. It's obvious, but let's get it on the record, and let's get a nice, tight soundbite of it that we can use going forward. And that's what he did. Um, I thought... I thought the testimony was very interesting this week. Um, I, I also thought that uh, na- former National Security Advisor uh, Fiona Hill uh, was a very compelling witness here. One of John Bolton's deputies. Yes. Yes. She was an exemplar of most of these fact witnesses who were Foreign Service professionals. She was organized, authoritative, declarative, clear and above all else, credible. And at this stage of the proceedings where they're hearing from fact witnesses, the important question is, are these witnesses credible as to the facts to which they are testifying? She was, Marie Ivanovich was, Bill Taylor was. All of these witnesses, I thought, were extremely credible. And that's the most important thing, because if we think about what the narratives are that are running, Rick, we've got, first we've got the question of what happened. And that's all about the credibility of the witnesses. The next question is, what did it mean? What do we take from it? What's the story? What's the narrative? And the story that the Republicans on the committee are telling is that this whole process is a sham, a witch hunt. It's part of a coup. And to the extent that these witnesses come forward and seem relatively reserved, but committed, professional, that's going to really subvert or contradict that story. And that's what these witnesses did. And Hill was probably the best of all of them. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joining me here, the WGN Skyline Studio, is a good friend of the program, Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Um, The president said that he didn't know Ambassador Sondland. Sondland said they had talked about 20 times. Uh, Trump says that he told Sondland that there was no quid pro quo, but that was after the whistleblower said there was a quid pro quo. But Trump says that after Sondland's testimony, basically, these proceedings should be over. I'm going to go very quickly, just a quick comment on what's going on in terms of testimony with Ambassador Sondland. And I just noticed one thing, and I would say that means it's all over. What do you want from Ukraine? He asks me screaming. What do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories. This is Ambassador Sondland speaking to me. Just happened. To which I turned off the television. What do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories. What do you want? What do you want? It was a very short and abrupt conversation that he had with me. They said he was not in a good mood. I'm always in a good mood. I don't know what that is. He just said, now he's talking about what my response. So he's going, what do you want? What do you want? I hear all these theories. What do you want? Right? And now, here's my response that he gave. 
Josuke. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? I want nothing. That's what I want from Ukraine. That's what I said. I want nothing. I said it twice. So he goes, he asked me the question, what do you want? I keep hearing all these things, what do you want? He finally gets me, I don't know him very well. I have not spoken to him much. This is not a man I know well. Seems like a nice guy though, but I don't know him well. He was with other candidates. He actually supported other candidates, not me, came in late. But here's my response. Now, if you weren't fake news, you'd cover it properly. I say to the ambassador in response, I want nothing, I want nothing, I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky, President Zelensky, to do the right thing. So here's my answer, I want nothing. I want nothing. Some extended remarks there. You know how I know that most of that was untrue? How? Because the president said he turned off the TV. The president never turns off the TV. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that call and that rendition of it by the president is is telling where we are right now because strictly speaking, I'm I'm exaggerating. You know, according to Sondland's testimony, that is what happened on the call. Mm-hmm. But it happened on the call after the campaign that had happened before that, in which the president appeared to be pretty clearly pushing for something from Ukraine uh, in exchange for the military aid and the White House visit. And so now, you know, if you think about where we are going forward, you've got this counter-testimony from Sondland where he's kind of a problematic witness. He's, he's right. saying things on both sides of it. Trump who lives in a world of ambiguity and will always just take that world of ambiguity and gloss it to the most favorable for himself. So now the Democrats, counter to that, are trying then to simply say, okay, we really know what was going on here, and they're trying to capture that with the idea of 2 plus 2 equals 4. And to the extent that he denied that he wanted anything in response, the other hashtag was he got caught. He's saying these things now because the whistleblower's already come forward. People know all this stuff, so now he's going to just say that, no, I, I don't want anything from Ukraine. So we're kind of getting to that point of the discussion here, Rick, where nobody's questioning what the fact witnesses said. And we, we shouldn't forget that. Nobody's really questioning the legitimacy of what they're saying. The Republicans really aren't questioning the legitis, legitimacy of what they're saying. What they're questioning is, how do we assemble those facts, put them together, and tell a story of what's going on? The Republican story is, the whole process is a sham and a witch hunt. The Democratic case is, 2 plus 2 equals 4. We know what was going on here. And then the next phase is going to be, okay, depending on what sense we make of these facts, what is to be done about it? Impeach or not impeach? What are the legal conclusions we draw based on those sets of facts? So we're we're kind of in this next stage now that we're going to move to. Given this testimony, what story do you draw and what implication is there from that story? And that's the rhetorical battle that's going on, including on the White House lawn. Do you think the Democrats have helped themselves with public opinion? And, I, and the reason I ask that is because ostensibly that's what the public phase right. of the inquiry was about. But I asked this relative some to some interesting polling that I've seen that shows after there had been momentum for impeachment and removal from office, hovering around 50%, yep. that's kind of backtracked. I think it's unclear. 
Uh, I've seen the same polling. So at the beginning of the week, there was a poll from ABC News, which indicated that impeachment and removal was polling at about 51%. Later in the week, there were a couple of other polls, one from Emerson that indicated that support for impeachment had dropped maybe five points in the last month, down to the low 40s. And there was a poll out of Wisconsin that indicated that maybe impeachment support had dropped two points um, to go under 50%. I think we don't know yet because those polls were taken before the end of all the testimony Mm -hmm. last week. Ultimately, the question is, successful with whom? If we don't really know which of those polls are the right polls, the real question is going to be, what is going on in swing house districts, where we have maybe Republicans who might be in some danger, or Democrats who were elected in 2018 who might be in some danger, and then in the Senate, the usual suspects, Cory Gardner, Martha McSally, Susan Collins, people who are going to have to decide whether they want to cast a vote for impeachment or not. That's really what matters. And to further the point, if you ask whether or not the Democrats are being successful, it's with whom? Certainly with people who already supported impeachment, the answer is yes. I think they did a good job. I think Schiff handled the hearings well. I think he did a good job summarizing testimony and telling the story well. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I I thought some of the most compelling words were his closing arguments at the end of each day. And that's developing a narrative based on those very thick, disparate facts that he's pulling together and doing a good job of it. But on the other hand, I think among Republicans, support has galvanized against impeachment. So we may be right back where we started, regardless of how successful the And that's kind of what I'm wondering is, you know, are we back where we started? I I think that's conceivable. And now we move to the next phase, which is going to be a series of questions about what's to be done. You know, the first phase is, what are the actual events? What were the phone calls? What were the meetings? That's about the credibility of the witnesses. The next stage is what narrative or story do we tell as a result, both within the hearing, but also on Fox News, on Blaze Media, at other outlets? What's the narrative about what actually happened? That's about story. So you got credibility story. The last part, which is what is to be done, is about values. What's at stake? What do we value? as a culture what's important and the republicans are going to say no one is above the law they've tested that phrase with the public they've tested it with focus groups it works well the republicans are going to say i'm sorry you said republicans are going to say that the the democrats are going to say no one is above the law the republicans are going to say i suspect rick they're going to come out and say this is really about democracy and we're within a year of an election so we should let the american people decide what's appropriate And if that sounds familiar, I think it's the same argument that they used with respect to the Merrick Garland nomination. When Obama nominated Garland within a year of the 2016 election and the the Republicans said, you know, we really should let people decide this because we're in a democracy. I think they're going to recycle that argument, frame that as the value that's at stake and put it up against the Democrats argument that no one is above the law. And then we're going to have that argument in the Senate about whether this is appropriate for actual. I, I think he will be impeached, but then the question of whether or not there will be a conviction. Well, and I think the Republican argument, the other bookend to let the public decide in the 2020 is also you're taking away the vote of 2016. Yeah, that's part of the larger. I mean, yes, in that, that Republican rubric of let the people decide. Right. Right. And to the extent that there is a a coup or a countering of what happened in 2016, this is just a part of that continuing conspiracy that has been going on since 2016. And the Ukrainians are a part of it. Uh, And 
and they were you know they were part of it in 2016 and now they're going to be a part of it again in 2020 and and on and on it goes uh, on and on it goes uh, and i mean so i, I was trying to uh, watch rudy giuliani on uh, fox news uh yesterday and uh spinning out uh, i mean all of this stuff about ukrainian involvement in 2016 which intelligence community had said it basically is saying that's russia trying to pin ukraine as the source for involvement in the election not russia itself right and that was that that was the crux of part of fiona hill's testimony was that when you parrot that claim that the ukrainians were involved you are parroting russian propaganda that's what you're doing you are doing the work of Putin when you tell that story. And also, there's there's never been a ton of consistency about the claim of what the Ukrainians actually did. One version of the story is that they were the ones that actually hacked the Democratic server. Another version of the story is that they were the ones that were working against the Republicans, not against the Democrats. So there's kind of this, uh, the Ukrainians 2016 crowd strike, kind of these these quick little blurbs. But those conspiracies mean a whole bunch of different things, depending on which conspiracy theorist you're you're listening to. Uh, so it, it has become more of a buzzword and a way to capture people. And it, it, Rick, it is working with certain audiences. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of shares of these stories on Facebook, on these media sites like Breitbart and Blaze Media. And so to that extent, it's it's working. I think what the Democrats are trying to hold out some hope for, I talked about the ABC News poll a minute ago, there were 51% of the people, at least at the end of last week, who thought that impeachment and removal was a good idea. There were 70%, 19% more, who thought that what the president did was wrong. But they weren't willing to say that impeachment and removal were appropriate. And I think that puts a fine point on the question of how effective is the story that's being told going forward and the argument about what is endangered and what should be done about it. And that's the work that Democrats have to try to do. They have to try to capture, I think, somewhere in that 20%, the people who are willing to say, not only is it wrong, but we're going to remove them from office for it. And the Republicans are going to say, you have an election coming up in 2020. Let people decide then. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. Now, the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson, the Chicago Tribune. Joined here in the WGN Skyline Studio with Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Uh, one of the great things I like about Jason is uh, an expert at rhetoric. Is that <laughs> is that a fair way to put it? I'm interested in it, Rick. It's it's up to you to decide. Well, I'd say expert at rhetoric, and and as part of that expertise, Jason is offering up to us as a special for this holiday week an ode to Thanksgiving. Thank you, Rick. Well. Thanksgiving's upon us, and all across Chicago and the country, families are struggling with whether they should discuss politics at their gatherings this year. But I'm grateful, thankful, one might say, that one issue my family won't have to address is the most crucial political mystery in the history of the United States. Because this week we got an answer to that centuries-old question of American political theory, the one that Madison and Lincoln could never answer. 
What happens when a rich, bald hotel magnate buys an ambassadorship for a million bucks, is accused of being a rogue agent, and then testifies about the impeachment of a reality TV star who declared four bankruptcies, divorced two wives, and descended one escalator before becoming president? I'll tell you what happens. That hotel owner shows up and has the time of his life, smirking, laughing, and implicating more people than Sammy the Bull Gravano. On Wednesday, Gordon Sondland arrived in the Capitol at 9 a.m., and six hours later, he had pointed the finger at the President, Secretary of State Pompeo, Mick Mulvaney, and Rudy Giuliani. All the while, he seemed like a man unburdened. And why not? Telling the truth is empowering. Getting revenge is empowering. But getting revenge by telling the truth? Forget about it. And just like that, the ambassador was on a plane back to Brussels. And what sprouted as a result? Well, the president, having once called the ambassador a great American, continued to know him less by the minute. At this rate, by next week, Trump will insist that the only sound land he knows is the one he tried to buy from Denmark. Even so, Trump declared the testimony a great victory for his cause. But he was less happy the next day, after career diplomats seemed to undermine the president's story. In fact, Trump was so upset that he went on Fox News to rail against the entire impeachment effort. It got uncomfortable, though, even for the Fox Morning hosts who gently tried to end the interview. That can't be good. When the Fox and Friends couch is tired of you, it may be time to dial your therapist and spend some time on his. So no, we, Rick, won't be discussing this issue on Thursday, because some of us at the table may see Sondland's testimony as damaging for the president. Others, like the president, may see it as exonerating. And a few may just like cranberries. So, rather than having a divisive Thanksgiving, we'll focus on what unites us. That with the holidays now before us, we can all agree that it's time to come together, pitch in, and buy Jim Jordan a sport coat. I'm Jason DeSanto. Thank you, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Brussels and sprouting. That was very, very well done. Oh, sure. To turn a phrase. And yes, Jim Jordan does need a sport coat. He's folksy. Uh, I, I guess, I guess. And, and a late addition to the Intelligence Committee, by the way. Um, an hope, a, hope an springs, add-on. Hope springs eternal. An add-on. Um, I wanted to shift from the uh, House hearings. Shifty shift? To, yes. To, uh, to, to the debate. Uh, and, the, you know, the debate in Atlanta, uh, and Jason has provided strategy for Democrats in the past, but I, I wanted to, I want to play some highlights from it, and then then we'll get your reaction to it. So this is a compilation uh, from the New York Times of uh, highlights from the 10 candidates, and we start with Kamala Harris. First of all, we have a criminal living in the White House. The president felt free to break the law again and again and again, and that's what's happened with Ukraine. By the way, I learned something about these impeachment trials. I learned, number one, that Donald Trump doesn't want me to be the nominee. We cannot simply be consumed by Donald Trump, because if we are, you know what? We're going to lose the election. Black voters are pissed off and they're worried. They're pissed off because the only time our issues seem to be really paid attention to by politicians is when people are looking for their vote. At some point, folks get tired of just saying, oh, you know, thank me for showing up and want, and, and say, well, show up for me. I care about this because while I do not have the experience of ever having been discriminated against because of the color of my skin, I do have the experience of sometimes feeling like a stranger in my own country. Turning 
turning on the news and seeing my own rights come up for debate. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, is, that's not true. true. The other that's one is true. here. Come first. <laughs> so my point is, do matter. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. This week I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> it's unfortunate that we have someone on the stage who spent four years full-time on Fox News criticizing President Obama. Yes, what Senator Harris is doing is unfortunately continuing to traffic in lies and smears and innuendos. I think that Pete is qualified to be up on this stage, and I am honored to be standing next to him. But... What I said was true. Women are held to a higher standard. Otherwise, we could play a game called Name Your Favorite Woman President. Voice is heard. But I want to get back to Pete Buttigieg and his comment about experience. I think experience should matter. If your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. Um, interesting debate, but I'm not sure, one, the, the ratings are down. Uh, this is debate number five, yes, I believe. Yes, that was five. Um, and I just wonder if you have the number of debates, the number of candidates, plus the impeachment issue, the oxygen is kind of going out of this thing. And the energy seemed lower at the debate. Yes. I don't know that the candidates had less energy, but the, the sense of import of it seemed reduced. That will change in January when we get closer to the Iowa caucuses. When we start getting into the middle of January, people who understand the stakes are a little bit higher, both on the stage and also watching. I don't think this particular debate moved the needle much on the polling. I do think that people did pretty well, by and large, in the debate. In the past, we could talk about people who had absolutely atrocious nights and people who had excellent nights. And I think here they were bunched a little more closely. I would rank it in tiers, actually, rather than in here's who won and here's who lost mm -hmm. i think it's much more of a continuum for that debate that we saw this week well and and i thought i'm not sure biden did well and and, and i say that because here was an opportunity frankly where everybody was looking at it's uh pete Buttigieg is going to be getting the attacks right and this kind of would allow biden to find a lane kind of to stay in and I'm just not sure that, you know, he hit the mark. He's not seizing the debates to cement his status as the person who should be going up against Trump. But we have talked about on this show before that there is a certain muddling along that he is able to accomplish in these encounters that seems to work fine enough for him that his hardcore supporters don't leave him because they say they understand him and no 90-minute or hour-long debate performance is going to change that. And I suspect, despite having a few embarrassing statements toward the second half of this debate, that will be true again. So if the question is, did Joe Biden cement his status as the challenger to Donald Trump, the answer to that is no. But if the question is, did Joe Biden do enough to keep 
bouncing along? The answer is yes. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, joined here in the WGN Skyline Studio with Jason DeSanto, Senior Lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. We were talking about uh, the uh, presidential debate. Um, have a text here about from someone as a moderate Republican voter. Joe Biden is a reset candidate. Um, the rest of the Democrats are too left, um, but with Biden, you can reset things and then look ahead to 2024. It's not the first time that I've heard that from Republicans. Um, that that's and that's certainly the framing of the Biden candidacy, both to Democrats to say I'm electable, and also to begin setting the table for a competition next fall against Trump. So I, I think that that kind of a response is exactly the kind of response that Joe Biden and the people behind his candidacy would say is evidence of his ability to win and the kind of statement that he would actually take to Democrats, not the Democrats who are on Twitter, who tend to be more left-wing, but the Democratic Party that knows Joe Biden and say, see, this is the currency that my candidacy would have. So it's it's a powerful statement if it continues to be followed, not only by Republicans uh, next fall, but also for him to be able to take the Democrats and say, this is why I'm the best candidate, because I can actually win. Do you think we're seeing a plateauing of uh, Elizabeth Warren? A, a natural plateauing. She got a lot of pushback against Medicare for all. She went back and refined it in a way that risks losing some progressive support, but in a way that also gives her the ability in these debates and going forward to say this is a graduated approach to what I've always said is the goal. Now, in some ways, that brings her a lot closer to somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who said the same thing. He's got a graduated approach to the goal. Amy Klobuchar would say the same thing. Biden would say the same thing. So rhetorically, they'll end up in the same place, but Warren is trying to count on her progressive propers to still be able to make the argument that I'm the one who really believes in it. You know, these other people here are saying they want to get there, but they're not willing to fight for it. So her plateauing, I think, is kind of a natural result, also because, honestly, Bernie Sanders has been a better candidate since his heart condition. He's been more human, he's connected better with people, and he's still got all that conviction and passion that people associate with Sanders. So I think it was kind of natural that she would hit that level, and now we get to the point where glide path to the caucuses, and we'll see what happens from here, particularly with organizing in these early states, which is crucial. Uh, Mayor Pete uh, thought, even though, yes, he was subjected to some uh, attacks, uh, nothing... Nothing that uh, was extraordinary. Both Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris had opportunities to draw much sharper attacks on him, and they did not. They both actually were very deft, I think, in the way that they handled what could have been a much more pointed exchange, but they still made very good points. And I thought Harris and Booker probably had to me, and if I were to rank a top tier from the other night, they would be in that top tier. And the next tier would contain Buttigieg and Warren and Bernie and Yang and also Klobuchar. But it's true, they didn't really draw those kind of contrasts. And whenever there was a contrast drawn, I thought that the mayor was good in response. He had the right combination of personality and also substantively responding. 
And when he had the back and forth with Tulsi Gabbard, that was an opportunity to be a little tougher, as Harris was against against Gabbard. And Which is something people have been waiting for, quite frankly, is uh, Gabbard to be criticized by uh, Kamala Harris. Yeah, and I thought that Harris, that, that that's low-hanging fruit for a Democrat. I mean, if you can say, hey, here's somebody on the stage with us who spent four years on Fox News or eight years on Fox News and was cri- uh, criticizing Barack Obama, you know, for a Democrat in a Democratic debate speaking to a Democratic audience, the ability to take somebody like that on that's the low-hanging fruit you harvest. And Harris did it effectively, much more effectively than she's been in the past few debates. And in the one-on-one with Buttigieg, ordinarily, you would say it would be challenging sometimes for a male candidate to get into a back-and-forth with a female candidate. You'd worry a little bit about gender dynamics. But Gabbard is essentially reviled by most of the Democratic Party that's watching. I mean, she has a core constituency, but most of the Democrats watching don't like her. So to the extent that uh, you're able to draw contrast with her, you're not going to hurt yourself as a Democratic candidate. And I thought he did it well, but I thought Harris did it particularly well. Uh, Tom Steyer. I thought Tom Steyer did himself some good in this debate. I thought he owned the climate issue, which is what he wants to stake his candidacy right. on, particularly the Jay Inslee, since he's gone out and he wanted to stake his candidacy on it. I thought Steyer did well for himself. I thought he had passion. I thought he spoke eloquently about why this should be the first priority. He needed more details, I felt, particularly introducing himself to people on what he was going to do. I mean, as audiences, we respond to somebody's passion, but also their plans, and Steyer needed to back up what he was saying with what he would do. Right. The other person who did well in that climate debate was Bernie Sanders, who sort of interposed himself and then brought it back to his general issues about corruption and about the kind of country we we're going to forge and was able, again, because I thought he had a good night too, to own that issue in a way that um, the other candidates didn't. So I thought he and Steyer were the best on that on that particular issue. So, of course, we still have, you know, 10 candidates on the stage. And just when you thought the field was being winnowed, you end up with Mike Bloomberg jumping in and uh, Deval Patrick, mm-hmm. which, and I, I thought one of the most interesting uh, debate-related stories in Atlanta uh, was the night of the debate. Deval Patrick was supposed to have a rally at uh, Moorhead College uh, and canceled it when uh, two people showed up. Does that say something? It says those two people have to make different plans. <laughs> I think. That, <laughs> well, but I mean... Uh, not good advance work is what it says. And the photo, there was a photo that went around on Twitter as well, Certainly doesn't look good for a candidacy. But if you're Deval Patrick or people with Deval Patrick, you're going to say, you know what, it's nothing but up from here, and someday we're going to look back at this as the place where we began. The ultimate question for him is, is it too late? That's really the question. He is somebody who has a relatively, by Democratic standards, moderate record, but also some more progressive credentials as well. So the theory is he can speak to both ends of the party, that he's somebody soft-spoken and can be a unifier, but he's also somebody who can give a pretty good stem winder of a speech. So again, kind of is able to do both things well. But at this point, the question is, where does he compete? And so one theory is he can he can make a dent, if not do better in New Hampshire, because he was the governor of Massachusetts. He ran media that hit New Hampshire for many years, and so they know him there, and then maybe he can use that to compete in 
in um, South Carolina as well. There's a larger African-American population. I think it's just a question of time, if he has time to do that. For Bloomberg, it's about money. Sure. He's got a lot of it. That doesn't come as news to anybody. And, and he's willing to spend it. He's spending it on TV ad time right now. Which will include here in Chicago. He's purchased time. Which And, of course, we have our... our preference primaries march 17th correct and at least one you know as one theory goes you would have Buttigieg who would win in iowa you have warren who could win in new hampshire you have biden who could win in south carolina and you have sanders heavy union support who could win in nevada at least under that theory you could have four different people winning those first first four primaries or caucuses and then somebody like Bloomberg says okay now the real game begins we get to super tuesday and i'm just going to i'm going to put all the money on the line in order to do well there but he's got his own issues to overcome Absolutely. policing issues in new york i mean that's that's anathema in the in the democratic party so he he will have his work cut out for him a lot to stay stay tuned for jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at northwestern pritzker school of law as always much appreciated rick thanks for having me